1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus made a powerful statement. He said, He who believes on me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Why does that passage of Scripture reveal the uniqueness of Christianity as compared to other world religions and what is this mysterious thing called living water? There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. This morning I was in prayer about what God wanted for this podcast episode today. And I felt like I was supposed to focus on a mysterious statement Jesus made about how if we believed on him, out of our innermost being, out of our heart would flow rivers of living water. I remembered that was in John chapter 7. So I pulled out my phone and went to my phone app that I read the Bible on. And much to my surprise, that passage of scripture was highlighted. I never highlight in yellow passages of Scripture on that phone app. I don't know how that happened or if I did it. All I know is when I went there, it was highlighted, and that was like a confirmation to me, a sign, if you will, that this really was the focus that God wanted and is the focus that God wants so let me read the passage of Scripture. It's three verses long, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. And I'll break it down and explain the different parts as we go forward. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This three-verse passage reveals the primary reason behind the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? that he is truly the only way. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That was either one of the most deceitful, despicable, egotistical things a person could ever say, or altogether the opposite. He was God manifested in the flesh, the only incarnation of God into this world. And for that reason, he is the door back into a relationship with God. There's really no middle ground. It's one or the other. And of course, I believe he absolutely revealed the truth. But listen to this closely now. He said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In New Age spirituality, which I once adhered to back in 1970, also within the framework of the Hindu worldview, which I adhered to as a yoga teacher and uh, the person running a yoga ashram in Tampa, Florida, I believed then that there was an essence of divinity within every human being, that the Spirit of God resided within every man, within every woman, boy and girl. And to find God, you look within. But this passage made it very clear that only after Jesus was glorified, which meant after his death on the cross, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, into heaven in a glorified body, only after that would the Holy Spirit be given. That's a complete departure from the Far Eastern mystical point of view, from the New Age point of view, which says there's an inherent divinity or divine life or divine essence within every human being. Why was it necessary for that to happen after Jesus's glorification? Because According to the biblical worldview, your soul, tainted with sin, contaminated not only with your own sin, but you've inherited a state of sin from the four parents of the human race, that has to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That has to be washed away by that precious blood that was divine blood. In the book of Acts, it says that we are the church of God, which he, God, has purchased with his own blood. If God ever had blood, he had blood in the veins of his son. And when that blood flows through us, when we receive Jesus into our heart and life as our Savior, as our Redeemer, that sin is washed away. And then, and only then, can the Spirit of God come to dwell within us. That's the difference of the point of view. In Christianity, God is external prior to salvation and enters into us. The Far Eastern or New Age worldview, God is internal and the essence of life within everything. So one or the other has to be true. They can't both be true. I do not believe that truth is subjective, that you can have your truth and I can have my truth. And, of course, I embraced the New Age worldview previously, but no longer. Also, that passage of Scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit is a gift. A gift is not something you work for. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. You work for that. You work your way through the misery that sin results in or causes. Um the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And also, in Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of, remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was a yoga teacher, 
I had the mindset that I had to work diligently for months, years, decades, and possibly even numerous lives coming back into this world reincarnated, which I no longer believe. But I really felt and was taught by the gurus I studied under and passionately believed that in order to attain God consciousness, I had to supremely discipline myself uh, to an excessive degree. And I would spend 12 to 14 hours a day in solitude, doing meditation, chanting mantras, reading the Hindu scripture, various other supposedly sacred books, in an attempt to earn the state of self-realization or God consciousness, this experience of the Holy Spirit. However, Jesus just said, he who believes on me out of his innermost being, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Spirit that was not yet given. The Holy Spirit is a gift. I know that sounds too simplistic to many people, and it sounds too easy, but God wanted it easy so that every human being could access this if they believe and if they surrender. Let me contrast this to the symbolism that is found in Hinduism. Within Christianity, it's referred to symbolically, metaphorically, as rivers of living water. Now, water is something that sustains you and nourishes you and quenches your thirst. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a, a very pleasing and peaceful symbol. But what does Hinduism offer instead? The awakening of the Kundalini. And the word Kundalini means serpent power. And according to that worldview, according to the yogic studies I adhered to very passionately back in 1970, the serpent power was a, a, a dormant divinity within every human being that had to be unleashed or released or awakened like a serpent striking. It had to be awakened through meditation, through the various yogic disciplines we were involved in. A snake can be a poisonous creature, and that's an altogether different kind of symbol than rivers of living water. Much different. And I believe a good indication of where that power is coming from. Now, what is this mysterious thing called living water? Well, we know that water is a staple of life. We can go about three minutes without air. We can go about three days without water. We can go about 40 days without food. It's one of the most important things for us as human beings to sustain our lives. So it is a staple of life. And I believe the molecular structure of water is a powerful part of the symbol because it's made up of two elements, hydrogen and oxygen. H2O is the structure of the, the molecule, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. I believe that's indicative of something spiritual because God's mind works in poetic symbolism. 
and see there's two parts to living water because the Word of God is represented as water in Scripture uh, many times. For instance, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul said that the church, the bride, is cleansed by the washing of water by the Word. And in the Scripture that we just read, Jesus likened the Spirit to water, and he called it living water. So I believe living water is a combination of the Word and the Spirit. And it's necessary to have both elements or elemental parts to have living water. And that sustains you. And it quenches your thirst for reality. It quenches your thirst for oneness with God. It quenches your thirst for purpose and fulfillment and wholeness in your life. There's so many ways that it becomes living water to you. It makes you alive. It awakens you. It resurrects you from the death grip of this fallen state that we're all subjected to and brings you into the life of God and the life-giving essence of a relationship with the true God. Notice that in the beginning of this passage, let me read it again. On the last day, that great day of the feast, and we'll get to what feast it was talking about in just a moment, Jesus stood and cried out. Can you imagine him in your mind at the top of his voice making this proclamation? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See, the primary, fundamental, number one prerequisite is you've got to be thirsty. I didn't get thirsty for the things of God until I was 18 years old. And that was after I'd had a near-death experience and I realized how shallow my life was, how brief this earthly existence can be, and how much I needed to prepare for the next stage of whatever I would face. And I got very thirsty for truth and very thirsty for God. Nothing else mattered. I dropped out of college with one intention, and that was to search for God until I found him and to search for truth. And I had this knowing that if I found one, I'd find the other. If I found truth, I would find God. If I found God, I would find truth. I was thirsty. And Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me. Faith is essential. And it's essential after you become a born-again Christian, after the Spirit of God comes into you, because you hit death-dealing situations in your life constantly. And just like a river has a constant fresh water flow, a constant fresh water supply, so also, we need this constant flow of the presence of God in our life from the point we come into a salvation experience or a born-again experience all the way through to the last day of our journey. And the way the river keeps flowing is when you and I keep believing. We've got to keep believing in God's promises. We've got to keep believing in his commitment covenantally to us. And we've got to keep believing in his sovereignty and his power and his ability to intervene in every situation we face in life that's negative. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
what scripture is he referring to? Well, primarily the scripture that he was referring to was Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, because that was the scripture that was celebrated and highlighted during the feast in which Jesus made this statement. And that was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot. And the scripture is Isaiah 12, verse 3, that says, Therefore with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. So he's really referring to his people as wells of salvation. Wells of salvation. Let me back up and go to John 7, 38 again. Jesus said, He who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think it's important to see that the word heart is translated from the Greek koilia, which comes from koilos, which means a cavity. And for that reason, koilia is translated belly and is translated womb because those are cavities within the physical body. But see, Jesus wasn't talking about the belly and he wasn't talking about the womb. He wasn't talking about a physical part of your body. He was talking about a cavity within your spiritual being. There's an emptiness. There's a hole in the heart of every human being that can be filled with nothing else but the presence of God. Everything else that we attempt to fill it with is insufficient. That's why in his conversation with the woman at the well, and remember it was a well where their conversation took place, he said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Those two scriptures tie together beautifully. Because see, when you turn your heart and life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a well of salvation. You become a well out of which this river flows. Strangely, it starts out with the river flowing into you. But the end of the process is the river flowing out of you. Because Christianity is all about others. Once you connect with God, once the river of life flows into you, quenching your thirst, and there's a constant flow the rest of the days of your life so that you never thirst again. In other words, you will be thirsty, but you'll always have something to quench that thirst so you'll not be searching any longer because Jesus will be there. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Living water is yours. But once that living water enters into you, it finds in you a place to occupy and flow out of. And there's really two ways it flows. It flows out of you back to God in the form of worship, and it flows out of you to other people who are thirsting in like manner. Now, let's go to the feast that was going on in Jerusalem when Jesus made this proclamation, because it's very important. During the Feast of Tabernacles, every day they did something called the water libation. All night long, every night, for seven nights, they would have this celebration 
in the courtyard of the temple. They erected 75-foot-high menorah lampstands that would light up the city. And all night long, Jewish men would be dancing, rabbis would be dancing with fiery torches and shouting and singing. Boys would climb up on the ladders to light the menorah lampstands, and and it would be a time of intense celebration. I've seen the dancing of Jewish men in the streets of Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Sukkot. And it is an amazing thing to see. It's a marvelous thing to see. Uh, It's so intense. I I can't compare it to anything except the scripture that talks about how David danced before the Ark of the Covenant with all his might when the Ark was coming back to Jerusalem. I mean, they stamp the ground, leap, twirl, uh, even do things that are similar to gymnastics in the way they express themselves with just absolute praise to God. And they did that because they understood that the Feast of Tabernacles was representative of a time when God would tabernacle with us on the earth. And they knew that the water libation ceremony, which I'm going to describe in just a moment, was prophetic of a time when God would pour out his spirit in this world during the Messianic kingdom. They didn't understand it would come in two phases. Now, it started with the ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit 50 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after uh, the uh, resurrection, 40 days after the, or 10 days after his ascension into heaven, and he ascended 40 days after the resurrection. But anyway, they understood that it represented a time of heaven on earth again, a time of the restoration of Eden and paradise in the world where God would walk with men and we would go back to what Adam and Eve had in the very beginning. So no wonder they would dance and sing and shout and praise God all night long, so much so that it was written in the Talmud. And the Talmud is a sacred writing to Jewish people. And I want to find the exact quote. It's written in the Talmud, those who have not seen those who have not seen the celebration of uh, of this of this festival of Sukkot have never seen joy. The Talmud declares, here's the quote, one who did not see the joy of the water drawing celebrations has not seen joy in his life because there was nothing to compare to it. And yet it was symbolic of something even greater and even better. So what would happen is, is all that long the celebration would take place. And the previous night, that night, they would, they would draw water from the pool of Siloam, from the spring called Gihon, which was running water underneath, the, um, the, underneath Mount Zion. And then the next morning they would go and pour it out on the altar into a, a vessel on the altar out of which it would drain. And it would be a sacrificial offering, a memorial, but a prophetic foreshadowing of a time when the world would be consecrated to God, like the world would become an altar and God would pour out 
his spirit in this world. So Jesus let them know that he was the Messiah. <laughs> they knew what he meant because it was right in the middle of this celebration of the messianic kingdom yet to come. And he said, he who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, other versions of it say out of his innermost being, will flow rivers. Notice it's in the plural, rivers of living water. I believe if that living water that causes you to be quickened to life, spiritually, supernaturally, is comprised of the Word and the Spirit, then no matter what you face in life that is negative, that is death-dealing, there is something positive in the Word of God and in the Spirit of God that will cause that to be carried downstream in your life. It will flow out of you. If you face depression, the Spirit of God is called the oil of joy, the oil of joy. And so there's joy in the Holy Spirit. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. But there's also joy promises in the Word of God, like the one I already quoted, Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. I think it's interesting to see that the word translated salvation in that scripture is Yeshua which is the actual name of Jesus in the Hebrew. In the English, it's Jesus. In Spanish, it's Jesus. But in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And that's the word for salvation. So I have become a well of Yeshua because Yeshua lives in me. And he, as the Savior who came to bring salvation, is constantly saving me from all the negative things I face in life that could deal death to my soul. And there's rivers, a river of peace, a river of joy, a river of wisdom when I'm confused, a river of knowledge when I lack it, a river of power when the enemy comes against me and I need power over the enemy. No matter what I need, there's a river to match that, that thing that I'm facing in life that is negative, that is destructive. This is so deep. This is so beautiful. Now, it was on the seventh day of the feast that Jesus cried out this proclamation. Remember, it said on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, the great day of the feast was the seventh day, and it's called Hoshana Rabbah. And that means the great Hosanna, the great Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save, Lord. It comes from Hoshina, uh, Hoshina, which means save, Lord, we beseech you. And it's from Psalm 118. And all during the feast, that's a celebratory phrase, a shout of praise to God. I asked a Jewish brother, a Messianic Jewish brother one time, why we use Hosanna as a praise word when it's really a request? Because in the original Hebrew, it's save, Lord, we beseech you. And he said in his Jewish English brogue, he said, oh, my brother, he said, it is because it is a request in full expectation of performance. He said, it's kind of like a woman asking her husband, you will take out the garbage, won't you? It's a request, but it's in full expectation of performance, right? And he said that with a smile on his face. So in other words, when we shout, save us, Lord, we fully expect him to save us from sin, from satanic attacks, 
from confusion in our minds, from depression in our hearts, from the errors of our past, from the separation we suffer from God prior to salvation. We expect him to save us from all these things. And again, salvation is a gift. It's also been said that there's a possibility the great day of the feast was the eighth day. And the eighth day, and there's a significance to this, the eighth day was the day after the seven-day-long Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And it's called Simkatora, which means the joy of the law or the celebration of the law. On that day, the last portion of the Torah is read in the temple or in the synagogue, and the scrolls are rolled all the way back to the beginning. So in other words, the symbolism of that is it's going to be rolled all the way back to the beginning, to the beginning of what Adam and Eve had with God before they fell. And thank God there's only one way to get back to that. Don't resist it. Don't reject it. Jesus is saying to you personally, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Receive him into your heart. Ask him to be Lord of your life, and you'll receive living water, and you'll never thirst again. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light, and thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.